Good morning. We are almost nine months into puppy training. We got a little Labradoodle last summer. Her name is Lilo, and she's getting close to a year, and so she's settling down, which is fantastic. But she's smart. Like, she's really smart. Open sliding doors smart. Yeah. Our little puppy is really getting the whole hang of cause and effect. She really understands this well. Like, if she rings the bells on the back door, cause, she gets to go outside, effect. If she follows all of our training cues, cause, she gets a treat, effect. And if she puts her nose in just the right place on the door and pushes, cause, she gets to Kaylee's bed, effect. This is important because that's the only surface she's allowed on is Kaylee's bed. And we think she's brilliant, like Benji or Lassie levels. Like sometimes we just say, like, why didn't we get a, a dumber dog? Like, why did we get such a smart dog? What were we thinking? But puppy love aside, she reminds me over and over again of our responsibility to continue learning from our master, to understand cause and effect in our own lives. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn to Colossians 3, verses 12 to 14. And if you don't have a Bible and you would like one, we would be so happy to get one for you. We love giving out Bibles. But if you don't have one right now and you have a smartphone or some sort of device, you can go to the App Store and get a free Bible called YouVersion, Y-O-U Version. There are lots of them, Olive Tree, there are lots. Um, we just love this one and all the reading plans that are associated with it. Colossians 3, 12 to 14. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And we have to remember that we are reading a letter. And so while it's necessary to break this into smaller segments so that we're not preaching on four chapters of material, this is not something that can just be read in sections. We can't just take little bits and pieces out of the Bible and think that they are standalones. Like nothing in this book is standalone. And so this section, verses 12 to 14, follow right on the heels of a call like we heard last week to not just put off the behaviors of the old man, but to search for the lifelines of sin and cut those off. To ask God to search us and help us not just address the behaviors of sin, but the roots of brokenness that are deep in our lives. But in order to really understand these few verses, we have to go back even further than that. Because just replacing old with new doesn't really work that well. And so we have to go back further. And as I was studying, I, I came across... Um, a scholar named Marion Swords, and so I have quite a few verses from him because he just had so much stuff that was amazing around this section of scripture. 
The therefore, however, reaches back to the material in Colossians 3, verses 1 to 4, and recognizes that whatever actions the Christians take are taken because of what God has done. That is, Christian life is the consequence of the gospel. And this is crucial for us to grasp because the life of righteousness that we're being urged to live is not just a replacement of bad behavior. It's not just saying, you know what, lying is bad, and so just be honest. Because that makes the Christian life just a life of rules. And if we think way back, then we know that rules for the sake of rules lead to failure, shame, and hiding. So it has to be deeper than that. No, we're being asked to live out the consequence of the gospel, cause and effect. Verse 1, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. This is the cause. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity effect. We're not looking just at a list of this is how a good Christian looks. This is how a good Christian acts. That's not what we're looking at. We're looking at the effect of a life sold out for Jesus, a life that chooses to honor and learn from our master. Let's pray. So God, I thank you that we continue to learn from you, that we've never arrived. And God, forgive us when we feel like we have this righteousness thing all figured out, because there's always something that you can do in us. And God, we desire to live the consequence of the gospel. We desire to live changed and set apart, not because we're following rules, but because we look like you. And so would you change the goal line for us? That it's not attaining an image, it's attaining a deeper relationship with you. And so this morning, God, as we just dive deep into your word, I thank you that it is alive and it is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, and that you are alive with us. And that spirit of truth, you convict and shape us. And so, God, I just pray that your words would go forth in power. And as always, Lord, would you allow my own just to fade? Because we want to hear you this morning. In your precious name, amen. Well, we know cause and effect to be true everywhere in our world. We have a scientific law of cause and effect. And so we're going to dig into the cause and effect of this passage. And so first we see an effect on our character. In verse 12, therefore as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And I love this passage, um, and I love Paul. Like over and over, he equalizes the church. You notice that? He just like brings the proud down a peg and he lifts up 
the lowly up a peg. And he just is over and over, especially we've heard it in the book of Colossians, equalizing the church. He's saying, look, like no one has any special knowledge. There's no hierarchy here. There's no slave or free, Jew or Gentile. You are all the same. And I love that. I love that he does this and reminds us of it because here again, he says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, it's for all of us. We are all holy and dearly loved. This refers to the work of those who have, to those who have accepted the work of Jesus on the cross. When we accept this gift of salvation, this is the work that Jesus does in us. It's not something we've attained on our own merit or by our own strength. No, this is the equalizer. We can't. Jesus alone does that in us. And saying yes to Jesus begins this work of holiness and sanctification in our lives, which is just a fancy way of saying we get set apart to look more and more like Jesus. He does that in us. But again, Paul equalizes us even further. He says, clothe yourselves. And this is the same word in the Greek as when we're urged to put on the armor of God. Clothe yourselves. There's plenty of intentionality in this word choice and an inference that it doesn't come naturally. We must choose to set our hearts and minds on Jesus so that the effect changes our character. Marian Sword says Christians are to put on certain characteristics so that they live these qualities. They do not merely have them. Not merely traits, but actions define Christian living. Can we all just breathe a sigh of relief? Like, I don't have to. Isn't that just freeing? That it doesn't come natural. Nothing in this list is something that you had before you came to Jesus. It's not up to us. Our choice is to set our hearts and minds on Jesus and allow him to start working out that process within us. It's not just a mustering of enough willpower to do or not do the right or wrong things. It's making the choice day after day after day to choose Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 3, verses 18, 2 Corinthians 3, 18, it says, And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This might be one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. It talks about a progression we are being transformed with ever-increasing glory. We are never going to be there. This life is just a constant moving closer to Jesus. And the day we think that we have it is the day that we've allowed our pride to become our goal rather than Jesus. It's the great equalizer. We have to put on the character of Christ. And it can't be accomplished by just following 
a list of do's and don'ts. It can only be accomplished by being immersed in Jesus. It's like learning a new language, right? You can have all the tutoring sessions you want. You can get Rosetta Stone. You can do whatever you want. But you're not really going to understand that language until you go where the language is spoken. Until you're immersed in it. That's when you pick up the nuance. That's when you pick up all of the different ways you can use those words. And we will never actually be walking out the full character of Christ unless we are immersed in him. So we can pick up the nuance of his heart, his values, how he lives. And so the cause of fixing our hearts and minds on Jesus has the effect on our character. It also has the effect on our fortitude. If you like the word forbearance better, we can use that one. Colossians 3 verses 13, so bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Who has had a roommate other than your spouse or sibling? Some of you. I had a fantastic roommate. Um, her name was Erin, and we got along really well. I was very fortunate in the room assignment from our college, but we had some, some differences. Like, I am not a night owl. Anyone who knows me knows I love my sleep far too much to stay up late. I love it. Like, if you could do any one thing in the day, sleep. That would be it. And so I need to go to bed super early. Like, I just get grumpy, even with my kids. Like, there'll be days where my kids are awake and I'm going to bed. Because I'm like, I need more sleep. 7.30 it is. Good night. It doesn't work so well with a roommate who is a night owl. Like, my roommate, Erin, loved late night chats. She just could be up until well after midnight and be fine. Now, because I go to bed early, I also tend to get up early. Like, I had the first shower slot at 5.30 in the morning. Now, my girlfriend, Erin, who would stumble into our room at 2, 3 in the morning, would sleep until, like, really, we were like, hey, the cars are leaving. Are you walking or are you coming with us? And then she would get up. There's a lot of grace required for us to live together for a year. Right? There's a lot of bearing with when one of us, either coming in or going out, would make more noise than intended. There's a lot of assuming the best. There's a lot of forgiving without having to have conversations. There's a lot of that because living with someone is hard. <laughs> and we are called to do life together. We are called in this room to not be separate. We're called to bear well. And the nature of doing life together is that our preferences, our way of doing things, our passions and heartbreaks are not always going to line up. Because we're not exactly the same. So the nature of doing life together is being misunderstood. Nature of doing life together is being hurt. 
The nature of doing life together is embracing the awkward because we are awkward. And we are messy. And sometimes we're hurtful. And so why do we still get surprised when life together is messy and awkward? Sometimes hurtful. Because we are each people who are walking towards Jesus and we don't start whole, we start broken. And so a community of people that are broken walking towards wholeness is not going to be always peace and perfection and unity. There's going to be a lot of bearing with each other, of forbearance and fortitude. And because we can't control how someone else acts, we can only control how we react. We have to do a lot of praying. God, would you give me fortitude? Would you strengthen me to walk well with one another? And we set our hearts and minds on Jesus, our cause, and that allows us to really understand his grace effect. And if we understand his grace and we understand that while we were still sinners, we were enemies of God, Jesus died for us. And if that's true, if God had that level of grace and mercy for us, that he died while we were offensive, he died while we were hurtful, he died while we were wrong, then doesn't that allow us to walk out a very different level of fortitude and forbearance and endurance with one another? But see, the thing is that oftentimes we get forgiveness and justice twisted, right? Like, we, we love justice, and we love forgiveness, but it's kind of like refereeing kids. Anybody refereed kids? You're like, well, why did you do that? Because they did it to me first. You're like, well, it doesn't work that way. That's not what forgiveness looks like. And it's kind of funny when they're kids, but how often do we do that? And we get forgiveness and justice mixed up with retaliation. We kind of want them to know just how wrong they were. And let it hurt a little bit. And we're Canadian, so we do it passive-aggressively. But we still do it. We, thanks for those of you who think that I'm funny. Lucas is so much funnier. I know. I just don't even try anymore. But we want people to have a taste of their own medicine. But that's not how God works. Right? That's not how forgiveness works. And I'm not saying that we let everyone off the hook, and I'm not saying that we become Christian doormats. Because I don't think that's how community works either. I think that we have to love each other enough to say, hey, this is between us, and it's going to erode our relationship or we're going to deal with it. And I think that each one of us have blind spots, and unless we have brothers and sisters who in love come and say, hey, this is going to end up being a problem in your life, and I love you too much to let it sit there without you knowing it, that doesn't work either. That's not love either. We have to find this balance. 
And the word for forgiveness here in verse 13, I've been practicing, is karidzamahi. Karidzamahi. And it's favor that cancels and is used of God giving his grace to pardon. This is freely done and therefore not based on any merit of one receiving forgiveness. We, more than anyone, should understand forgiveness and grace because we have been forgiven of everything, not on our own merit, not because of anything that we've done. Jesus died because before we were apologetic or changed, and yet how often do we hold on to our hurt and we say, I'm going to extend forgiveness once you show me that you're apologetic or changed. Jesus didn't do that. And even after we came to him with all of our brokenness and said, God, forgive me, he didn't say, well, I'll forgive you this much. It'll be like the trial run. And if you really earn it, you can have the rest of it. And yet we, we do that so often. Like, you know, I'm going to forgive you this much. But if you do it again, I'm going to forgive you this much, but then I need you to prove it. Church, we need to be people that are forgivers because God forgave us. And the effect of setting our heart and mind on the one who sanctified us is that we are people who are quick to extend grace and mercy with the fortitude to do this life together even though it's going to be messy and awkward and hard and hurtful at times. But if we do that and we come back to Jesus over and over and say, God, would you change us? Then we see this deepening of love. Don't we? Because praying for those that have hurt us always changes us. Colossians 3, verses 14 says, And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Now, there are four words commonly used for love in the Greek. There's storge, which is the familial sense of love. So we'd use it for our parents or our siblings or our child. We love them different than we love other people. There's eros, where we get the word erotic. It's an intimate love, and that's the setting that it's used in, right? A romantic or intimate love within the confines, we're going to say, that's not how it's always used, but of marriage is the intention for that. And then there are two other words for love that are very, very similar. And these are the two that are used in the New Te Testament. There's philia and there's agape. But we talk about agape love all the time within church context, right? But I want you to hear about philia love. Philia love and agape love are both so similar because they're both giving loves. It's laying down what I, I want and I need to do what's best for you. They're both giving loves. 
Philia love is commonly referred to as the brotherly love, or it's the friendship love. The difference between philia love and agape love is that philia love is a reciprocated love. It's saying, I'm going to do this, but I'm expecting from you that you're going to do in return someday. I'm going to extend you love, but I'm expecting that you're going to extend me love back. Where agape love is a no-strings-attached kind of love. Saying, I'm going to continue to pour out love even if it's never extended back to me. That's the love that God gives us, right? He died on the cross even if we never embraced his forgiveness. He still loved us enough to go there. Agape love is a verb, not a noun. It's an action over a feeling. Now, I want to make the distinction because I don't know about you, but I can often say I'm acting in agape love, and it's not. It's philia. Right? I would love to say that my love for Lucas, who we're married, if people don't know that, is agape love. But you know what? I actually can't get to agape love on my own. Out of my humanness, the best I can hope for is philia, which says, I will love you if I will love you when I will love you, and my love can be minimized. If you don't pick up your socks, my love is minimized. (laughs) That's not actually an issue in our marriage, so I can use it. So, right, even with my kids, I can say I love you with no strings attached, but parents can be honest, that's not true. Our love has strings attached. There are days that I like my kids a whole lot more than others. Right? Like, if a bear came and you catch me on that day, mm, I wouldn't actually sacrifice my children. This is on recording. I will not sacrifice my children to a bear. I cannot get to agape love on my own. The best I will ever do is philia. But this is not the love that God is asking us to put on. He's saying, look, when you set your heart and your mind on me, I am going to get you there. I'm going to make you the rest of the way to the no strings attached. You're going to put this on. You can't muster it up from inside. I have to do it for you. I have to get you to agape love which binds us together in perfect unity or perfect harmony. That word, binds them all together, is teleotase, and it speaks of accumulation, of a building upon one another to unity and grace. And if I set my heart and mind on Jesus, the cause, and I allow him to put and work out agape love in me, the effect then there's going to be a building upon and a fortifying. Just like in order to build a strong fortress, you need to end up stacking stone upon stone upon stone. This whole idea of we bear with one another, we forgive with one another, we love with no strings attached, 
we build stone upon stone upon stone. And we get to a community of unity. It doesn't happen overnight. It happens with intentionality. Matthew Henry says, A courteous disposition becomes the elect of God. For the design of the gospel is not only to soften the minds of men, but to sweeten them. And to promote friendship as well as reconciliation with God. <laughs> They're having a lot of fun over there. I love it. I love the sound of children's ministry. There's nothing in my whole world that makes me happier than that. We are not called to do this faith thing alone. We're called to do it together. But in order for that to happen, we can't just have softened hearts to one another. We have to have sweet hearts for one another. We can't just be moved to like care. We have to be moved to action. Friendship toward one another as well as reconciliation with God. The universal law of cause and effect states that for every effect, there's a definite cause. And likewise, for every cause, there's a definite effect. We can't be like Jesus without Jesus. We can pretend. It's not going to last. And that's why this whole thing isn't about the rules, right? Rules for the sake of rules lead to failure, shame, and hiding. They don't last. We can do it for a season, but it's going to get exhausting. And we're going to be like, hey, I tried, and that wasn't who I am. That's not what Paul is talking about here. He's not saying put on this character, put on this fortitude, put on this love and fake it till you make it. No, he's saying, you know what? Set your heart and mind on Jesus and allow him to do this deep work that's going to be lasting and live out the consequence of the gospel. It causes ripple effects. Setting our heart and mind on Jesus, like throwing a stone in the water and watching it ripple out. Right? It ripples out into our character. As we spend time immersed in who Jesus is, he starts to rub off on us. And listen, like we say that and it almost sounds like it's not hard. Absolutely, there's work involved. There's a choosing him all the time. But if we choose him without spending time with him, we're not going to last. Because we need to do the deeper work like we heard about last week where we go down to the roots, to the brokenness, and we say, God, would you actually kill off this brokenness and bring me to wholeness? That's hard. It's not like we pray and then we walk out and like all of a sudden we're better people. That's not how it works. But the only way that this can be lasting is if we're with Jesus. Otherwise, we're just acting. And we can put on one character when we want to and one character when we don't. When we set our hearts and minds on Jesus, the cause, he starts to do something in us, the effect. 
and we see our character change where all of a sudden this isn't just what we do, it's who we are. We're not just honest, we're trustworthy. Right? We're not just good, we're kind. And it's who we are. And setting our hearts and minds on Jesus allows us the fortitude to walk in community, in he that grace to pardon like we've been pardoned. Not based on our merit, not if we're, we're forgivable, not if we even show that we're changing. And again, that doesn't mean that we have to be doormats. We can walk with each other to the cross. It just means that while we're on that journey, we've actually already forgiven them before we took a step. The forgiveness is not dependent on the person or what they've done or if they even want to be forgiven. It's dependent on what we have experienced through the cross. And the cause of setting our hearts and minds on Jesus allows us to love agape love so you can become united i'm going to close with this thought but some translations will say harmony instead of unity and i love that word because harmony doesn't mean all singing the same note right and likewise i think there's this mis conception that if we look more and more like Jesus, we're all just going to look the same. But that's not true, because the character of God is so vast that we can all look more and more like Jesus and still look different. But harmony also doesn't mean that you sing whatever note you want, because that's terrible. And there's still a responsibility that if we are walking in this faith community that we are filtering everything through the word of God and Jesus and we allow him to work out how he looks in our lives. Unity is not conformity. It's harmony. There's a depth and a richness when we walk this faith journey together that just isn't there for singing alone. Let's pray as we ask the worship team to come. God, I thank you so much that you equip us to do everything you've asked us to do. And you've asked us to walk out faith in community. It's, it's personal, but it's not private. And so I thank you that you give us the fortitude and the unity to be able to do that. But God, I thank you that looking more and more like you also means looking less and less like everyone else around me. That there is a uniqueness that you created each one of us with. I pray that you would give us the courage to chase after who you designed us to be with the unique passions and preferences and way of doing life that you knit into our very being. Those things that you designed to honor you and to complement what you're going to do in the world around us. 
give us the courage to run after you well. And God, would you help us to change the goal line that we're not just trying to look like a good Christian, we're trying to look like you. And when we set our hearts and minds on you, the outcome will look that way. But that's not what we're chasing after. We're not chasing after the character change. We're chasing after you. That the ripple effect would be there. And that our character, our fortitude, and our love would look more and more like you every day. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your forgiveness that was not based on our merit. Otherwise, this would be a pretty empty room. Would you confront us with how great your love is for us, that we may extend that to others? In your precious name, amen. Well, why don't you stand with us as we sing?